Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. This evening, the trail has traveled is being recorded on the edge of the Selway River. We are in the heart of the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness, and we left the fire to climb the slope and sit above the river. You can probably still hear the river in the background. And I'm sitting with Mark Martin. Mark is a fly fishing guide, a river guide, a steelhead angler and advocate for Idaho outfitters and guides, a rider, a conservationist, and a person who moved to McCall, Idaho for backcountry skiing and fishing for steelhead. My first question for you is where did you grow up and how was adventure a part of your childhood? So I grew up in northern Maine. For New England, it was actually quite a bit out there. My folks' house is right on the edge of this big, empty section of northern Maine. Essentially, the whole northwest one quarter of the state has kind of nobody living in it. And we lived right on the edge of that with a sort of unlimited backyard that went to private timberlands that then went to state park. To If you headed straight west from you know our back door, you wouldn't cross a paved road or hit any town or civilization until sometime in Quebec. It felt like public land, you know, for all intents and purposes. It was sort of like mine. There are native brook trout in all the streams and brooks and creeks and rivers and landlocked Atlantic salmon that were native there. And I was really lucky to grow up in a family that prioritized outdoor adventure. And it wasn't necessarily big outdoor adventure. A lot of it was like within walking distance of our house. But I knew those woods and waters really intimately within a three mile or so radius of our house. We fished, we hunted, we canoed, we skied, mostly Nordic skied, just in exploration of the woods that we lived in. We were just always outdoors. Like it didn't matter what season, whether it was like berry picking, foraging for fiddleheads, mushrooms, hunting grouse and deer with my dad fishing for brook trout. And my folks are both educators, but they both had summers off. And so we had this family place on a big, deep, cold water lake, not too far from our place in Northern Maine. And this is really close to Baxter State Park and like kind of the highest peaks in the state. So we had this summer place that was essentially a cabin on cinder blocks with like no electricity and no running water. And when school was out, we would have a week or two at home and then we would basically close our house down for the summer and we'd go there for the rest, you know, like June, July, August. And we'd come back at the end of August and go back to school. Messing around in boats and swimming and, you know, in swim trunks all the time and fishing and catching frogs and, you know, exploring all over this lake and stuff. And, like, I can draw a straight line from there to what my life turned out to be up through now, really. Like, living seasonally, moving back and forth with the seasons, working seasonally, and keeping it all outdoors. We slept in this loft that was like open and you could hear all the night birds and loons and stuff on the lake kind of all night long, you know. And throughout the summer, the noise of waves on the shoreline and loons calling and stuff like that. It was just kind of like an ambient part of 
life. Like when you're asleep at night, you are not in this soundless, sterile box of a room somewhere, but you were always like part of the outdoors and hearing those sounds and smelling the smells and feeling the wind as it came in the screen window and stuff. I think that sunk in pretty deep. That was living outdoors is basically like how we did it when I was a kid, more or less. When I was 17, I landed this high school internship with a a state agency in Maine that was tasked with Atlantic salmon conservation, the only species this agency dealt with. I got an internship doing that. We were trapping adult Atlantic salmon at the top of the VZ Dam on the Penobscot River, and, and that dam has since been removed. You know, Maine has these really struggling remnant Atlantic salmon runs, and I was lucky enough to get to have almost all of those salmon in my hands throughout the course of the summer. I got to hold each Atlantic salmon that made its way up the Penobscot for like seven years. And some of them are wild origin and a lot of them are hatchery origin. And even the wild origin ones were mostly hatchery genetics. And it was always like diluted a little bit in terms of how pristine, quote unquote, that experience was. But it was still this wild fish that had been born in a river, went to the ocean, managed to elude every form of danger and peril out there for a couple of years and came back like 30 inches long, big, bright, and strong to these rivers I was intimately familiar with. Like, they were the rivers I grew up near, you know? But fishing had been prohibited for Atlantic salmon for a few years because there were so few at that point. And that changed when I was a kid. Like, when I was really young, I think George Herbert Walker Bush was the last U.S. president who received a presidential salmon. The first salmon caught in Maine each spring was gifted to the president of the United States, right? So that was like 92. Must have been 93, I guess, then, that like you could no longer fish for Atlantic salmon. And so while I was working on Atlantic salmon recovery, I also was watching the dissolution of the angling culture around Atlantic salmon. There used to be several salmon clubs up and down all these different salmon rivers in the state of Maine. And when fishing finally was prohibited, and it had to be because there were so few, river advocates and salmon advocates disappeared. To make a long story short, I hit a bit of a brick wall in life, like around age 23, 24. And I'd been doing doing salmon conservation for several years. Basically, I decided that I wanted to be a fly fishing guide somewhere else. And I had one college buddy who was guiding in Stanley, Idaho. He was just a whitewater guide, but he got me hooked up with a company that needed a part-time fly fishing, part-time whitewater guide. You know, things were sufficiently desperate with me that I like packed my old broken down Subaru and drove 3,000 miles with it stuffed to the gills and, you know, like a canoe on top and all that stuff. Took a job as a fly fishing guide for trout in Stanley on the Salmon River. That led to the Middle Fork. And I always kind of kept steelhead in the back of my mind. I knew that they happened in the Salmon. I hadn't really gotten it figured out when I moved there. But I do remember in the fall, I still had a a fisheries and wildlife background and, and that degree from the University of Maine. And I took a job as a wildlife technician with the Nez Perce tribe doing a bighorn sheep study in the Salmon Canyon, like above Riggins. And we were tracking sheep with telemetry. This was October, November. We were always on the south side of the canyon. We were always like in the shade on the south side of the canyon. And it was so, so cold. So this one spot at the Wind River Pack Bridge, the sun would set in the notch of the canyon. And it was like the only 20 minutes out of the day 
that you could be in the sun because you're just on the wrong side of the river. And I remember going out on the middle of the bridge one night, bringing a beer and just like dangling my legs over the downstream end of the bridge and soaking up the sun a little bit. And I looked down and there's a little bit of a fast chute there below the ramp up into the pool above the ramp. And I watched this big, beautiful B-Run steelhead power up over the gravel bar into the pool. And like that was the first one I'd ever seen. And it just blew my doors off. I was like, holy shit, not only do they exist, I've been right next to them for like a month. They're right here. I watched until it was dark and just watched like fish after fish move up over the gravel bar. So on my next off days, I went back and and I had actually built my own single hand steelhead rod a few years before when I was still in college. I'd used it for like saltwater fly fishing and stuff in Maine and And I went back and got that out of storage and started trying to catch steelhead on the salmon. And I never touched a fish all that fall. And I watched hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them migrate. When they're moving, they roll. Like, they roll on the surface a lot. And they roll, like, conspicuously enough that you can see exactly what that fish is. You can see, like, the whole rosy stripe down the side. Sometimes they almost, like, make eye contact, you know? Like, they're looking around, they're really curious, right? And they roll on the surface, so you can actually watch their eye move and, like, link up with you, and they see you. And then they spend another six to eight months, travel another 400 miles and spawn somewhere up the Middle Fork or the Main Salmon, you know, or the East Fork or wherever. But for a moment, you made, like, eye contact with this, like, wild steelhead that swam around the Pacific all by itself for years. And then it came all the way back, and it still has hundreds of miles to go. That is the voice of Mark Martin. He's a fly fishing guide, a river guide, a steelhead angler, and advocate for Idaho outfitters and guides. This evening, the trail has traveled is being recorded on the edge of the Selway River in Idaho. We are in the heart of the Selway Bitterit Wilderness. It is dark, but I can still see the outline of the mountains that are arising above the Selway River, which you can hear in the background. And I'm sitting here with Mark Martin. He is a fellow river guide. He's also a fly fishing guide, a steelhead angler, and advocate for Idaho outfitters and guides. So Mark has been working on salmon conservation since he was 17 years old. I think it's an understatement to say he's passionate about it. He lives it. And today he shared a very special story with me on the river. And I'm hoping that he might be willing to share that story in regards to the importance of salmon and steelhead recovery for future generations. I started fishing for steelhead almost as soon as I moved here. It took a few years for me to catch on to the like spay casting, spay fishing revolution of sorts and to have the confidence to come try and fish the clear water, you know, the big river that's supposed to be super tough. And steelhead are renowned for being extra big, you know. It's the only B-run steelhead river in the world, really. And then eventually I brought my dad out here for a week or two weeks each October. And I taught him to spay fish and and swing flies for steelhead. And and we'd kind of go all over the inland northwest. And mostly it was the Clearwater. Starting around the year 2017, the runs really crashed. Lower than I'd ever experienced them out here. We'd had crashes like this before, you know, decades past. And little recoveries. And then there's always a lower low that comes around. 
And that's kind of what happened for five or six years. I didn't fish the clear water. And I'd fish the salmon during that time a little bit closer to home. And it really became more about a ritual of fishing with friends and something I really loved doing rather than, you know, hunting hard and actually catching fish. Because it kind of couldn't be about catching fish anymore. There just weren't that many left. I mean, you couldn't really expect to catch one each time you went out like maybe you could have before. So this past year, 2022, the B run of steelhead was a little bit stronger than it's been for the past several years. I was guiding some spay fishing trips on the salmon out of Riggins, and I decided to spend, you know, a week by myself on the clear water like I hadn't in years. And, you know, I used to spend most of October up there just figuring it out and sleeping in my truck and sketchy pullouts and eating backpacking meals and ramen and getting up at four in the morning with, you know, my wading boots would be frozen and be frost on everything and just suffering it out to try and figure it out. And there was something really ascetic feeling about all of that. I guess in most mythologies, right? Like you have to spend those 40 days in the desert to become worthy of whatever it is at the end. And unfortunately for me, like steelhead just don't work that way. There's not a nice story arc to that, but that was a lesson in itself that was pretty valuable. So maybe I spent my 40 days in the desert and maybe I just went home with like a lot of sand in my ears at the end or whatever. But anyway, so I decided to go back for a week. It was about all I could carve out this past fall. And the other thing that was happening concurrent with my sister was about to have her first child in uh, early to mid-October and she was due and then, then passed her due date and the same way I've celebrated or mourned like a bunch of milestones in my life, you know, whether it's births, deaths, big changes as I, I did it with a fishing trip. And so the first morning I was out, I was rowing away from the boat ramp in my drift boat with my dog. It was dark. I was so excited, like a kid Christmas morning and just that feeling in your stomach. You're just unstoppable. And, you know, I knew exactly where I was going to. I was going to one of my two favorite steelhead runs in the world on the clear water. And I knew I was going to get there before everybody and just have plenty of time. And there's like no traffic on Highway 12, not a single car going by. You know, it was just this quiet, dark morning. And my phone buzzed and it's a text from my mom. And she was telling me my sister had just gone into labor early in the morning. They were heading to the hospital. My niece was about to be born. So that just kind of elevated cloud nine, you know, even a little higher. And, you know, stepped into my favorite steelhead run. And I was fishing a small skater dry fly, like about a size 10. It's a real small steelhead fly. But I kind of just had the feeling it was a morning where things would happen. And, you know, I wanted to catch fish on a dry fly. It had been a few years. And sure enough, at the end of a long, long cast... You know, I watched my fly skate across the surface a couple feet, and I watched the steelhead take it off the surface, swirl, go back down, you know, and all the superlative epic fish fight sort of narrative followed. You know, this big, beautiful, wild, B-run female steelhead had eaten my fly and, and just ran and jumped all over the run, and, you know, it took me forever to land her, and I finally did. And, and I thought, this will be like my niece's birthday fish, right? This is the fish that I catch on her birthday. And it was my biggest clearwater fish to hand. And I thought that was like really pretty special for that day. It was really special. And I waited for the rest of that day to hear more news of what was happening with my sister. Had my niece arrived yet? Had she given birth? And, you know, I texted periodically and she hadn't. You know, things kind of slowed down and, and they were waiting to see what would happen next. And you know, so I met up with some friends and I finished my float and I went back to my campsite and, you know, prepared for the next day's float. 
and the whole time, you know, I'd wake up like every now and then in the night and check my phone for a text, you know, to see if Phoebe had been born yet and she hadn't. And, and then I floated the whole next day, never, never touched a steelhead. I don't remember if I even saw one and I checked in periodically and the labor was, was going really slow. Like she, you know, she just wasn't ready. And so they were in a waiting game too, albeit like a much more important and significant waiting game, you know, on the other side of the continent. But we were in limbo at the same time, right? Like I was sort of waiting with them from very far away, sort of like still searching for a fish, maybe searching for something else too. So again, you know, finished my float, went back to my campsite and went to bed, got up early, decided to do the same float as the first day. And again, you know, I pushed off with my drift boat in the dark super early to get down to my favorite run. Just as I was landing there and getting ready, I got the text from my mom that Phoebe had been born, you know, like early that morning. I was over the moon, you know, it's my first niece or nephew. My sister and brother-in-law have been really excited and it's just, you know, incredibly special. So I proceeded to step into this run and start fishing short. And that's kind of how you always do it. If you're kind of like a dedicated hunter, like if you hunt hard for steelhead, like you unhook your fly from where it rests in your rod and you cast only that much line, which is usually just your leader. You know, the reason being that there could be a steelhead really close to you. And you might miss that fish if you decide to cast far. And then after that swing completes, you pull a few feet, two to four feet of line off your reel and keep it consistent. And then you swing that much line. And then when that swing completes, you pull the same amount off again and swing that little bit more. You know, I was listening to rooster crow in somebody's backyard and the goats bleeding up on the hillside and watching the deer browse around. And I made like my third cast and a fish took it. And I hooked that fish. And so now I've got one on. Didn't feel really big. And so I kind of tested it. I leaned on it a little bit. I gave it some pressure with the fly rod just to keep my line tight, see what it would do. And it didn't really feel like the most impressive fish, but it immediately just took off downstream. One of the most impressive runs I've ever seen any fish make fresh or salt. Like it was just this unstoppable fish going fast, going hard, obviously had a lot of weight to it. And so I scrambled up onto the rocks and started scrambling downstream after it. And I followed it, followed it, reeled and reeled and reeled, and I caught up with it. And as I tried to ease it over toward me, I realized, like, it's big enough that it can kind of do what it wants. And I couldn't force it toward me. And it took me most of another half an hour to move that fish the final, like, 30 feet to my hand. And I'd gain some, and it would take a lot back. And I'd gain some, and it would take a lot back. And I'd get it close to hand, and it would bolt back to the middle of the river, you know, all that steelhead stuff. And finally, I brought it to hand. And it was actually significantly larger than the fish two days before. And it was the biggest steelhead I've brought to hand, my personal best, you know, from the clear water from anywhere. A native wild Clearwater Bee Run steelhead in all its majesty. Just this unbelievable beast, you know, gilling. And they're so vital. Like their eye is looking at you while you're looking at them. And, you know, you're actually like making eye contact with this fish that, you know, was born maybe up here in the Selway, maybe in the Loxa, who knows where, but made its way all the way out to the Pacific. Who knows where it went there? It made its way all the way back to the Clearwater that October and then 
it still had another six months to live in the river and finally make its way up to spawn. Maybe it could be even upstream of where we are now. Like it could be 30 miles upstream of us in some creek that we passed today on our way in, you know? Who knows where it is, but it's up here somewhere. And so I released this steelhead and and I was just kind of standing there like basking in this glow of like, I can't believe I just caught that fish. And, and my phone buzzed again and it's like a picture from my dad, like first picture I got of my niece, you know? And she's all wrapped up in a blanket and stuff and she's just fresh out the oven and... And really immediately, like right then and there, the thought occurred to me that... 15 years from now or you know 18 or 25 or 30 maybe that my niece could catch her first steelhead she could catch her biggest steelhead she could catch a steelhead of any kind in the same spot where I was standing on her birthday that could be something that maybe I get to give her one day uh, or she could never catch a steelhead. And I don't know, like, which one it's going to be. If she never gets into it, that's fine. But if there aren't any more of them, then it doesn't matter what she's into. And, like, that flame has gone out. So, again, we're sitting right here uh, up above the banks of the Selway River in the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness. And you probably hear the river a little bit in the background. We are in one beautiful lobe of this Idaho wilderness. It's sort of got its heart in many, many places. I kind of need to continue the story of the fish and of my niece in a different way with another character. It's another woman who I've known for many years as a river guide on the Middle Fork of the Salmon. And the Middle Fork flows through the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness, which abuts this wilderness to the south. If you wanted to go from here to there and you didn't want to cross a road, you wouldn't have to. We're in a wilderness that's the size of Rhode Island that doesn't have any roads in it. I began guiding on the Middle Fork in 2009. On my first trip, there was a, a Shoshone Bannock tribal member who was at the Indian Creek guard station on the Middle Fork named Diana Yoop. And she served as a cultural interpreter for her tribe and sort of jointly for the Forest Service. And she would give talks to all the river groups that came through Indian Creek about the Sheep Eater Shoshone and the Tukadika history of the Middle Fork, her people's history of that area. And she also would give groups a special river blessing that she had written herself. And she, you know, she'd give that to every group. And, and over the years, she and I became friends. I'd see her every week, just year in and year out. And, and our conversations ranged all over the place from, you know, spooky things that would happen out in the wilderness to our families to growing up. And, and we, we always would talk about salmon and steelhead. And she had all kinds of stories about her family's salmon fishing when she was young and where they would fish and, and what she remembered about how many fish. And then she also had been an archaeologist and she had excavated one of the most significant salmon fishing sites in that wilderness. She had been one of the few native people who had actually sifted through her people's history at one of their most important salmon fishing sites. And unfortunately, I received the news about three weeks ago that she passed away on the reservation down in Fort Hall. And 
it was hard because we were we were close friends. Um, I'm not sure what made me think of this, but I think I was thinking about my niece Phoebe and the beginning of her story and how it sort of begins with a steelhead for me. And then I thought about Diana and her story just coming to an end. And I kind of realized that Diana, for her whole entire life as a Shoshone Bannock tribal member in Idaho, she had only known salmon decline. She's only ever seen the salmon diminish and diminish and diminish. And there being fewer and fewer and fewer for her family to catch, for them to sustain themselves, for them to sell, for them to put by for the winter. And I'm not exactly sure what this intersectionality of the beginning of my niece's story and the end of Diana's means. I think it has to mean that there has to be an inflection point here where all the things that have been happening that are the death by a thousand cuts of our salmon, our steelhead, this has to be the inflection point where some of that turns around and they don't just continue to decline and decline and decline for the rest of my niece's life, for the rest of my life, for the rest of any of our lives. I would love to continue Diana's story, but there to be an epilogue with, with a bit more of a happy ending or a hopeful continuing, at least. I still don't know what to make of that intersection of their stories, but there's something there that feels powerful and it's inspiring to me anyway. Beautiful. That is the voice of Mark Martin. We're sitting here in the dark on the edge of the Selway River talking about salmon and steelhead friends new life coming into the world and life going downstream today the trail has traveled is being recorded on the Selway River we're in the heart of the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness we're floating in a adorable 13 foot ore boat <laughs> it's being navigated by Mark Martin and Mark is a fly fishing guide a river guide steelhead angler and advocate for Idaho Outfitters and Guides. He's also a writer, conservationist, and human who moved to McCall, Idaho to backcountry ski and swing for steelhead. Mark, I would be grateful if we could take a moment to share some information and potentially some inspiration regarding the recovery of salmon and steelhead and the removal of the Snake River dams in order to do so. So for the past few decades, since the construction of the Lower Snake River dams, and there are four of them between Idaho and and the Columbia, the salmon and steelhead runs have been declining pretty steadily. And sometimes there are upticks in in returns as ocean conditions get really good for them to survive and stuff like that. But every decent return year is always followed by a crash that bottoms out lower than before. And that's become true recently oh, 2017 through 2021 has, has seen returns uh, that were some of the lowest on record in some cases there are some fishing season closures especially for steelhead on the clear water and that's disastrous I've seen firsthand how the culture of a river sort of disappears if the fishing for anadromous fish disappears as well the culture just kind of follows right along with it and that river's advocates tend to disappear along with the culture What I see here is getting pretty dire. You know, last year was a decent steelhead return year. The B-run steelhead anyway, which are the larger fish that spend, you know, two to three, two to four years in the ocean, 
returned at a slightly higher rate than the smaller one ocean a run fish but still not at sustainable levels and nowhere near their historical abundance and in lewis and clark's time it's thought that you know between two and six million salmon and steelhead spawned in idaho annually and that's all wild fish like no hatchery influence just wild fish that were all born here like for some perspective there are just under two million people in idaho right now 250 years ago our rivers used to support three times that many salmon and steelhead and now we're sort of lucky if if somewhere between 40 and 60,000 wild fish return and there are more hatchery fish than that but that's not really exactly sustainable for a number of reasons that i won't dive too deep into here next year the 2023-2024 steelhead return year is forecast to be the lowest b-run steelhead return on record and as of right now 910 wild b-run steelhead are forecast to return to idaho and that's between all the forks of the clearwater whether the locksaw the selway that we're on now the south fork of the clearwater and that's the entire salmon basin so the whole middle fork and all of its tributaries and the entire rest of the main salmon and all of its tributaries 910 fish total that are wild and spent two to three years in the ocean and for a little perspective on that there are twice as many giant pandas in the wild there are a little over 1800 giant pandas left and there will be half that number of b-run steelhead in idaho next year which are a completely unique strain of steelhead nowhere else in the world grows b-run steelhead Nowhere else in the lower 48, nowhere else in Alaska or Canada. They only happen here in Idaho on the salmon and clearwater tributaries. And A-run steelhead don't make B-run steelhead. They make A-run steelhead. It is only B-run steelhead that make B-run steelhead. And I think the importance of that is tremendous in ecological terms because these particular B-run steelhead are at least twice the weight, pretty often, of their A-run counterparts. Each of those steelhead is this little, like, nutrient-packed microbus that makes its way up from the Pacific, you know, loaded with marine-derived nutrients. And each of those is twice as nutrient-loaded as an A-run steelhead would be. And when they spawn and die, you know, up in these forests, they really, really re-fertilize the creeks and rivers that they spawn and die in, and they re-fertilize the forest that they're in as well. Idaho's B-runs in particular are really widely known, especially throughout the Northwest, as a popular game fish. And really the Clearwater is the only place that you can fish for steelhead in the lower 48, where it's quite likely that you could catch a trophy-sized fish, and one that would be considered just unimaginably large in almost any other river system, you know, outside of a few, some in British Columbia, maybe some coastal systems, but the percentage of big steelhead here is like nowhere else in the world. And that would be incredibly tragic to lose. So there is uh, a pretty huge groundswell of support for the one centerpiece action that is pretty widely agreed upon by almost 100% of fisheries scientists who have studied this issue. The centerpiece action to restore these steelhead runs and salmon runs that, that are alongside of them is, of course, removal of the four lower Snake River dams between Idaho and the Columbia. Those dams contribute about half of the hydro system mortality on the way to the ocean. If you remove 
that hydro system related mortality from those four dams, you know, simple math says that you double the survival between here and the ocean. You know, we know that ocean conditions are changing all the time and climate change isn't making them any better and it's usually making them quite a bit worse. One argument to keep the dams in place is that they're not the biggest driver behind salmon decline and that climate change actually is. And while climate change is certainly contributing to their decline, I think a much more powerful counter argument and one that's quite a bit less cynical and makes a lot more good sense to me is if the ocean conditions are changing such that it's making it harder for salmon and steelhead to survive in the ocean, why not give them better conditions on the way there to allow more of them to survive before they get there? It's a percentage thing. You allow more to survive between here and the ocean and more will survive to come all the way back. This is the issue that I'm pretty committed to, personally, professionally, with my role at Idaho Outfitters and Guides Association. It was an issue I was already advocating for before I took this job. But the role of IOGA in the whole Snake River Dams issue, I've found to be a really good fit for me as a sportsman and also just as kind of a community member. And our position is we support the removal of the Snake River Dams, but only with complete replacement of the services they provide. And that seems pretty important because, you know, while while those dams failed to become like an economic savior or an economic engine of the inland northwest, there still are thousands of people that depend on them for something, whether it's their entire livelihood or a little bit more affordability in their in their power bill. And they provide some shipping services, they provide some electricity, and they provide a little bit of irrigation and a little bit of recreational opportunity. And the fact is that all of those services have been studied independently, and all of them have been found to be replaceable through other means. Replaceable doesn't mean replaceable at no cost. We're talking about huge infrastructure changes to the whole shape of the Lower Snake River and everything that depends on it. It's not going to be low cost, it's not going to be cheap, and it's not going to be easy. But the fact remains that the electricity provided by the dams, the barging and shipping provided by the, the reservoirs that they back up, the irrigation water, and the bit of recreation they provide, all of those can be replaced in other ways. Whereas salmon and steelhead really don't have other options to get from these high mountains of Idaho, whether the Bitterroot Divide or the Salmon River Mountains or the Sawtooths, they don't have another way to get to the ocean. And we have tried those other ways. You know, we tried to trap and barge juvenile fish around the dams, which parenthetically is where the bulk of mortality occurs counterintuitively is a juvenile fish going from their headwaters rearing areas to the ocean rather than the adult fish coming back we've tried barging juvenile fish around the dams the fish don't really have another way to get up and down Um, they need a free-flowing river we tried barging both adults and juveniles around the dams and that doesn't have an appreciable effect on their survival really what they need is a free-flowing river that removes hydro system interactions with the machinery of the dams. It also prevents the river behind those reservoirs from heating up to a lethal point at certain times of the year when they're trying to migrate. It removes habitat for a lot of the introduced uh, and non-native predator species that prey upon them when they're when they're making their way out. And it removes habitat for some native predator species that prey upon them on the way out that maybe didn't historically have great habitat in that river system, so their predation effects were quite a bit lower than they are now. 
But the slack water behind those reservoirs makes it really easy for bass species and northern pike minnow and other stuff that's been introduced there to, to prey upon juvenile salmon on their way out. That's the voice of Mark Martin, and we're floating down the Selway River in the heart of the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness. You may have heard a rapid in the background, and you did, actually, because we're recording on location. That's the whole point of the show. Mark's rowing a boat and speaking articulately about the recovery of salmon and steelhead. Super important issue. Mark, before we kind of move on to the next steps, for someone listening, or maybe someone who just tuned in, steelhead, their relationship to rainbow you know, what makes them a steelhead and how many miles do they actually swim up river, you know, and the fact that steelhead actually go back out sometimes and those basics that we can maybe just put out there for someone listening that doesn't have too much of a background on it. Yeah. So steelhead are sea run rainbow trout. They're spawned in, you know, generally high elevation tributaries in this area. They spend usually two years living in their natal stream, the one they were born in before they migrate to the ocean and the high water of spring of their second year. You know, at that point, they're somewhere between 8 and 12 inches in size. And then they spend anywhere from one to four years in the ocean. Idaho's A-run steelhead usually spend like one year in the ocean, and B-runs, it's like two to four. While they're in the Pacific, there is no commercial fishery for steelhead because they don't form schools, and each steelhead swims out into the Pacific on its own and spends its one to four years out there just all by its lonesome, hunting food, swimming around, thinking who knows what kind of thoughts out there all alone for years in the Pacific. And then they come all the way back to the mouth of the Columbia, up through the Columbia, its hydro system, up through the snake, its hydro system, and then using chemical cues, you know, that are present in trace amounts in their home rivers, they basically smell their way all the way back up to within feet of where they respond. And and steelhead are really known for their sight fidelity, which means that they pretty often spawn within feet or yards of where they themselves emerge from the gravel as tiny juvenile fish, which is just amazing that their navigational capabilities are not only on such a huge global scale that they can find their way back from the Pacific, but are on such a micro scale that they can find their way into their natal stream and then within feet of where they emerge from the gravel. And I've seen that myself in work and in play, like, you know, just watching spawning steelhead. You'll see the same spot is nested in every year, essentially. Their nest is actually called a red, R-E-D-D. One other really cool thing about steelhead, every population of sea-run steelhead has an associated resident rainbow trout population. Those are fish that could have been born from sea-run steelhead parents that never go to the ocean. They remain in the river, and they just live out their lives as trout, just like any of the other trout, like, you know, West Slope cutthroat or, or anything else. And they're, for all intents and purposes, rainbow trout. They can spawn with sea-run steelhead when they're sexually mature, and they can have offspring that are sea-run and resident. And Two sea-run steelhead produce a certain percentage of resident offspring. Two resident rainbow trout will produce a certain percentage of sea-run offspring. And then you have this whole spectrum of percentages from there. If resident and sea-run fish spawn together, 
you know, then their offspring are even more of a mix of resident and sea run fish. And it's kind of this genetic insurance policy. In one of the rivers I'm really familiar with, the Middle Fork of the Salmon, there was a, a landslide dam that happened thousands of years ago that dammed up the river to hundreds of feet high. It was completely impassable for salmon and steelhead. However, those resident rainbow trout descended from steelhead would have remained above that dam and thrived when the dam finally broke loose and the river ran free again. Those resident rainbow trout, some of them went to the ocean and repopulated the entire river as steelhead over time. We've actually seen this happen in the Elwha River on the Olympic Peninsula. Its race of summer run steelhead were completely extinct. However, the descendants of former summer run steelhead before the dams were living in the river above the dams. When those dams finally came out, <clears throat> or a little over 10 years ago now, those resident rainbow trout got the urge to migrate, went to the ocean, and came back as summer steelhead and have repopulated that river as summer steelhead, as a race that was not just functionally extinct, but extinct. That life history strategy did not happen anymore until the river was free flowing. And the same thing is poised to happen here. And that's where I find a whole lot of hope for steelhead in Idaho. There are resident rainbow trout that I catch all the time in the middle fork of the salmon. And calling back to that site fidelity idea, I catch resident rainbow trout with unique color patterns in the same parts of the river each year and each week. And then other unique color patterns happen in other parts of the river. So they basically just hang in their family home for years. And essentially when, you know, when the Snake River dams come down, let's say when, those fish's sea run offspring, the ones that get the urge to migrate, will be able to do that. They'll be able to much more likely to survive the trip out to the ocean and come back and introduce so much genetic diversity into that steelhead population, creating robustness, you know, that just perpetuates itself down through the ages. And not only, you know, is going to make that forest and river system that they live in so much healthier, but, you know, also creates this amazing, amazing diverse steelhead run for us to interact with as anglers and as naturalists, uh, as whoever. Yeah, that biodiversity is kind of good for everybody. That's the voice of Mark Martin. We're floating down the Selway River. We're about to take out. And I want to say thank you for your time and energy joining me today on the Trail Less Traveled. Yeah, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Can you share a few bits of advice with whoever's listening out there? I kind of want to make it Salmon Steelhead Snake River Dam's advice. Mm -hmm. Look into this issue and just sort of pay attention. There, there are news and new developments happening with the Lower Snake River Hydro System and Salmon and Steelhead almost all the time. And if we're going to remove those four dams, it requires an act of Congress, which means that it doesn't matter where you live in the United States, your elected officials are going to be important in the debate, in the vote, whatever it is that happens. And if they hear from you that you would support dam removal on the lower snake, then they're much more likely to, to vote that way and, uh, and restore, you know, fish like salmon and steelhead to Idaho in healthy, abundant numbers for the sake of not just Idahoans, but the indigenous tribes that were here for thousands of years, depending upon their abundance. And honestly, people that visit from all over the world. It's not a resource that's just ours alone even though I feel a little protective of it. It's kind of for everybody. Stay vigilant and take action when and where you're inspired to do so, and maybe take action even if you're not that inspired to do so. <laughs> Mark, what song would you like to end your show with? It's called Salmon River by Dean Stevens.
Namaste Missoula, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, The Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure radio series. The Trail Less Traveled airs every Sunday evening at 6 Mountain Time, and you can stream the show live online at trail1033.com. If you missed the premiere, the podcast is also available everywhere you find podcasts. You can view the full show archive and learn more about our international outreach programs by visiting traillesstraveled.net. My adventure tip this week is, remember, if you're getting out on the river, please make sure that you've invested in education and proper gear. But more importantly, the educational component is vital when it comes to safely exploring our natural world. Until next week, please remember, conservation is not a spectator sport. It's our responsibility to speak up on behalf of the incredible resources where we call home. Namaste, friends and listeners. Mandela here. In order to keep the podcast ad-free, I'm asking folks to donate a few dollars each month. You can support my podcast and outreach programs in schools by visiting traillesstravel.net and following the link to my Patreon account.